Hey, welcome to the 1505 Club. I'm Dr. David Fowler, Vice President of the Gonstead Clinical Studies Society. Today, my guest is Dr. Jeremiah Thompson. I've known Jeremiah for over 20 years as we were both students together. Following graduation, he went to practice with Dr. Mark Working, who we recently lost. He helped with the textbook, Working on Extremities, by posing for the pictures in the orthopedics chapter, as well as writing the chapter on orthopedics. He helped Dr. Working with many of his extremities workshops and seminars, and he practiced with Dr. Working for 12 years before returning to his hometown, which just so happens to be about 45 miles away from me. Jeremiah and I see each other quite frequently, and we have conversations often, so I thought it would be great if we could get one of those conversations recorded. So, without any further ado, Dr. Jeremiah Thompson. Hi, Jeremiah. Thank you for joining us today. No problem, David. Thanks for having me. <laughs> you bet. Um, do you, um, can you start off by telling us a little bit about how you got into chiropractic and more specifically how you got into Gonstead Chiropractic? Okay. No problem. So uh, I've been a chiropractor for 18 years now. I graduated in April of uh, 2002 from uh, the Southern California University of Health Sciences, formerly Los Angeles College of Chiropractic. Um, Let's see, I moved out to Illinois and did, uh, I was supposed to just do my uh, kind of post-septorship slash internship with Dr. Working, and I blinked and I was there for 12 years. <laughs> so I spent 12 years practicing with Dr. Working, who wrote uh, Working on Extremities, was a uh, Gonset Extremity instructor for the uh, Gonset Seminar for a long time. Uh, how did I get into chiropractic? I was injured often when I was, when I was young, and a couple times I... Uh, one time I crawled into a chiropractor's office and walked out, literally crawled in and walked out. And I was like, hmm, maybe I could do this. And my mother has a, um, uh, a 90 degree uh, hemi, or she's got a structural scoliosis with a 90 degree uh, in her low back and a 60 degree back the other side in her mid back. So she's always had back problems and has been going to the chiropractor. So she took my brother and I to the chiropractor from the time we were pretty much born until, uh, you know, moved out of the house. And so I had a lot of good experiences with it. And I pretty much knew I was going to be a chiropractor from about fifth or sixth grade on. So, um, I was pretty, I was pretty blessed that way. Uh, so yeah, that's, that's how my chiropractor got started. I think if I left anything out of that story, I don't think so. That's it. How did you end up with Gonstead? Okay. So, um, so I decided I was going to be a chiropractor and I picked, I didn't know anything really about, as I, as I know now, I was going to an activator doc actually as a, as a, a non, you know, before I went to chiropractic school. So, um, I, that was the experience. That was only my experience I had as far as chiropractic goes. And I, and I, I did have a diversified adjusting chiropractor when I was probably in high school also. So, um, so I get to chiropractic school and the one advice that the guy who, the chiropractor who recommended I go to school was, he said, go to every seminar. And he said, go to every speaker that comes uh, through, he said, because you need to get really exposed to a lot of different ideas um, as, as much as possible. In fact, that's why he picked Los Angeles as far as the place I should go to school, because he said that's a central and, you know, you get more speakers coming through there. And he was a Palmer West grad, so he didn't feel they had enough of that going through there. Nothing wrong with Palmer West, but that's the that was his thought at the time. So. So anyways, I'm in first semester there and there's a um, there's this guy named Dr. Uh, Richard Goal going to come speak at our school and our Gonstead club had brought him in and I didn't know what Gonstead was, but 
some kids on campus were asking us to go sit down and, and uh, experience that. And this is probably towards the end of first semester, my first semester of chiropractic school. And Dr. Goal, you know, he did his lecture and then he was scoping people up in front of the whole whole class and he was sitting people down and then he was adjusting people after that. And I finally get up there and he scopes me and he says, you're okay. You don't have a single reading. You're, you're, you're good. Have a nice day. And I had never seen anybody when I, when I was watching people work on people, I'd never seen anybody tell somebody that they didn't need an adjustment. I'd always seen them working on, you know, finding something to work on, you know, irregardless of their condition. And so I was fascinated by the fact that there seemed to be some objective criteria that he had found uh, that told him that I did not need to get adjusted. And so uh, I kind of gravitated towards that. And uh, next thing you know, I was, you know, fully gone stead <laughs> and attending the seminars, every single seminar pretty much that came along that I could. And, um, you know, I think I became president of the Gonset Club in fifth, by my fifth, um, by my fifth try. So of chiropractic school. So that's, that's kind of how I got absorbed into Gonset. And I decided that that's, you know, how I wanted to do it. And also, oh, I hurt my neck when I was in chiropractic school. And I had a, it was like C7, C7, T1 area. And I happened to be in chiropractic school and I heard it on at the start of a, a break. And I had, I was, I thought I wanted to be a surfer. So I had rented a house over break in San Diego and I was uh, trying to teach myself to surf over. It was right. It was, the house was close to the beach and uh, but the night before I was shoulder pressing seated working out, which you should never be doing, but I didn't know at the time. And uh, I kinked my neck right around C71. And it was hurting so bad that when I got down to San Diego to try to go uh, surfing, I couldn't hold my head up. And to be able to lay on a surfboard, you have to hold your head up. So as a, um, most chiropractic students know and chiropractors, you can walk into most chiropractors offices and uh, get adjusted, you know, and they won't charge you. And so I was in San Diego and I just looked in the phone book and found, you know, a chiropractor close and, and tried to get worked on. And, and I wound up going to about nine different chiropractors and not a single one of them helped me. So then I came back uh, from break and I was a little bit worried uh, because I was still stuck. And it had been two weeks where my head was kind of cocked over to the side and was very antalgic. And so I come back to school and I have every doctor that's at um, Los Angeles College of Chiropractic work on me and nobody's helping me there. None of the students are helping me there. Finally, one of my friends takes pity on me, and this is this is second try. And he was he happened to be tutoring with a Gonsteg chiropractor at the time, and he says, "Just come with me down here to this guy's office." And uh, it was it was a uh, Ryan Blossie. I don't know if you remember him, uh, David. Yes, I do. Yeah. Yes. So we go down to uh, Ryan Blossie's office, who happened to be Mark McGuire's chiropractor actually at the time. And uh, he sits me down, and he's you know explaining chiropractic, and he sits me down and scopes me, and he finds a spot, and boom, he fixed it like instantaneously with a seated. Uh, cervical. I don't remember if it was C7 or T1, but, um, and I was instantly better. And I had had probably 15 chiropractors work on me prior to that. And I had been, you know, all of the, uh, modalities that they want to teach you at school and, uh, everything else. And nothing really had helped except that specific seated cervical chair adjustment. So that was another experience that's just cemented in my mind that the the effort it took to learn the Gonstead cervical chair was worth it because I had seen the other, in fact, most of the other adjustment techniques actually made me worse or hurt so bad. I couldn't even stand it while they were trying to do it. And the Gonstead adjustment, you know, was painless and, and worked. And so, um, you know, the combination of those experiences is what, uh, really, I guess, gave me the determination because it's hard to learn that cervical chair adjustment. You know, uh, I feel the seated or the, the supine cervicals, I felt like, do not take long to learn at all compared to the seated cervical. It takes, 
you know, semester's worth of time of practicing all the time. And so, but that gave me the motivation to stick with it because I knew that it was worth it. And I knew I was going to learn something that no one else would know how to do very well. And I, I felt that that would be valuable one day, so, which it has, you know, become. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So today we want to talk about extremities. And so you know so much about extremities. And um, I guess to start off, maybe this is a little philosophical, I suppose, but there are definitely chiropractors who only adjust the spine and they stay away from extremities. So what is the, thinking about all of your past experience, what's the major thing that convinces you that it's a good idea and that we should adjust extremities? Um, I think the major thing is just caring about your patient. You know, do you, do you care enough about your patient to actually fix or try to fix almost every problem that they have? Or do you only care about their spinal problems and, uh, and if they have, say, a wrist or an elbow or a shoulder or an ankle that you're going to send them to a medical person uh, to fix that, which is, you know, there's nobody else really knows what they're doing. It's either rehab or, or drugs and surgery. And, and most of that stuff works, you know, a small percentage of the time compared to what a very specific adjustment would work. So if you're trying to think in your head, if you uh, want to learn extremities or not, to me, you have to ask yourself, do I really care enough about my future patients to put the time in because they are all going to have extremity problems. I can't believe what percent I, I, I would say probably 70% of my patients have a, an extremity problem and a uh, spinal problem at, at the same time. In fact, a lot of times my first patients come in, you know, my first patient I ever worked on legally after I was licensed was, um, was a, was a thumb problem that I knew how to, that I knew how to fix just from what I'd learned at the gunset seminars with Dr. Working. So that's, I think you got to ask yourself that question when deciding if, um, ex learning extremities or not is, is my patients. And you just think of your family, you know, cause you're, if I, is your mom worth learning so you can fix her shoulder? You know, is it, is it worth you learning how to fix an ankle? Cause you, so you can fix your dad's ankle one day. Um, and I, that's, I was passionate about that. And that's how I um, was able to justify it um, from a philosophical standpoint. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess, what was it like three or four days ago, you adjusted my fibula. And so um, Ben, who works with me, he had typed to me, he said, Hey, did Jeremiah adjust you? And I said, yes. And I know he was expected to be a, an EX ilium or a rotated sacrum or something like that. And so he said, what did he adjust? And I said, an AX fibula. And he's like, what? <laughs> he said, I didn't expect that. And then I said, you know, honestly, I didn't either. Because even for me, it makes me aware that even in my own body, I'm we're so unaware of what's really causing our, our problem. We're so distracted by pain that unless you really can get in there and, and away from all that and feel what's happening, that truthfully, my fibula was making my back hurt and it was making a big difference. So it's funny how those things can hide. And until you find it, you would have gotten stuck in the trap of constantly adjusting the pelvis, constantly adjusting the pelvis over and over and over. And you never get to the root because the root was actually a fibula. Yes. And, you know, I think extremities are valuable. And that can be a big practice builder because I will tell you that um, it's not always obvious uh, to a patient if there's not pain, especially associated with the vertebrae you're trying to palpate, what's going on with them. And sometimes you don't have as much of a, um, an aha moment after you work on them, even if you get a good adjustment on a, on a spinal segment. But with an extremity, um, especially an extremity that's really stuck, it is especially the calcaneus or the or a fibula uh, that are extremely hypomobile. If, if you get that adjustment correct, it is dramatic how much range of motion returns instantaneously to that joint. And that becomes very... 
you know, people can see that people can feel that people can, um, people can show that to other people. And it's, it's a pretty aha moment that helps with marketing <laughs> to the next people of, uh, of your problems, just like with your fibula being uh, twisted on you a little bit. Uh, and that's a pretty simple adjustment. Um, in fact, I know I had a, a the, uh, he was the head physical therapist at one of the local hospitals at, in Peoria, Illinois, and he had been worked on and worked on by multiples of people. And they all thought it was like L4 referring down there or possibly L5. And uh, I'm like, well, what if it, I think it felt like a proximal fibula to me and we adjusted it. And next thing you know, he was referring me uh, probably 10 patients a month just because of the fact that I knew how to fix his very simple teach you in one seminar <laughs> proximal fibula <laughs> to, uh, to adjust. It's not that complicated. So, but just to know that, that, that it's there, um, you know, that's the thing that um, can be invaluable to people. Once you know yeah. how to fix it, the, the, the pre and post, you know, you can, you can palpate it. It's not moving at all. You adjust it and it's, it is moving. That's one of the best um, to me, you know, um, objective criteria after an adjustment that, that helps people really go, aha, this is working really well. This guy does know what he's talking about very much. So it kind of establishes you as the expert in your, whatever town you're in, because nobody else is going to, at least around everywhere I've been, nobody really, really puts the time in to understand the extremities. They kind of know general stuff on it, but they don't know the specifics on it. And if you want to be the expert in your town, uh, this is another thing to become an expert at. Yeah, I have a hypothetical question for you. So it's obviously not real. I'm just curious what you would say. Yeah. If you could only adjust one extremity, which one would it be? Ooh. If I could only adjust one extremity. Well, having just come off a bout of osteomyelitis of <laughs> uh, L5 through L3, I literally almost died from it and was not able to move. I was literally on a walker um, uh, until, you know, about the last month. Uh, you know, not being able to move, like be able to get up out of your chair, be able to, to say, get to the restroom on your own. I didn't realize quite how life altering that can be for people. So if you have an arm or an elbow or, or a shoulder or, or a jaw, you know, those things are, are bad, but you can still move around. You can still get in and out of your vehicle. You can still get to places. But if you have a, a low back or, or a, a lower extremity injury, uh, those things really can become debilitating on people and then affect their quality of life. I feel much higher than a, than an upper extremity injury. So I would probably say an ankle <laughs> as, yeah. as, uh, as random as that is. Um, if I could only adjust one joint, it would probably be a talus or a calcaneus because it's, those can be, you know, debilitating to people. I've, you know, if you, you say you sleep with your, with your legs kind of crossed in your, um, We'll say your left leg over your right leg with your with your calcaneus uh, everted a lot. You, you're basically your calcaneus eventually gets wedged into that position, and now when you when you stand up on it because there's no because the joint is subluxated and not able to move at all, uh, the the foot doesn't move like it should, and that starts transferring all kinds of stress into your plantar fascia and up your Achilles tendon, and that becomes debilitating to people over time. I mean, they literally they give up on life almost because they they, they have weight problems. They have uh, depression problems all because they can't move like, uh, like they're supposed to. And you can, it can be pretty dramatic to people just with a couple adjustments, how, how much faster they get better. So not that I would ever want to only limit myself to one, but that's what I would do. And exactly. I that comes from my, my recent experience with not being able to move. <laughs> well, that's why I said it's hypothetical because obviously we would never do that, but yeah. I was thinking about like the scapula for instance, because, um, just because we've seen how when the scapula misaligns, 
it will it'll do that same kind of thing where it keeps messing up the spine. So you're adjusting the spine, adjusting the spine, adjusting the spine, and they're not getting better. And a lot of times it's a hidden scapula problem in there that might be doing it. Um, the other one would be like a TMJ because you could be adjusting upper cervicals over and over. But if there's a TMJ problem, it's going to keep coming back. So I was thinking along lines of those hidden ones that tend to make other things that we think are bread and butter not get better. Yes. Well, I'll tell you, I'll give you an example of my, I've started back to work now slowly. I I didn't see any patients for two months and um, uh, I just have had patients come back to me who've been seeing some of the local chiropractors around here. And um, most of them were for extremity, you know, injuries. One of them is a TMJ patient who was seen trying to get her TMJ adjusted by a couple other chiropractors and nobody really knew how to fix it. And I, I put it back in and like, it probably takes five seconds to fix it. And it's not that complicated once you understand it. Uh, but people felt it's valuable and valuable enough. I mean, literally people are coming to my house. I'm not even back at the office yet <laughs> to, 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 to get their, uh, jaws fixed. And they were just waiting for me to feel better enough to be able to adjust them. And it's just from knowing how to, how the jaw misaligns and, and then how to fix it. So, um, yeah, yeah, the scapula, the, the, the scapula is 50% of the range of motion of the arm, meaning the, the shoulder blade sliding on your rib cage. And so, if your arm is abducting, if your arm is uh, flexing uh, horizontally um, or abducting hor- horizontally, you are sliding that rib- that scapula all around. And when your scapula stops sliding like it should on you, you start to lose some of your range of motion. And a lot of people don't even realize it. You know, women notice it maybe a little bit more because they have to put their bras on and off, and they tend to reach around their back to have to uh, snap that. But uh, a lot, a lot of especially men don't reach, you know, behind their back very much. Uh, you know, so they don't realize suddenly that they've lost, you know, half their range of motion. And, and when the scapula sticks and stops moving, that really tends, say you go to, you know, reach behind, say you're driving in your car and you're the driver and you go to reach into the back seat to grab something, that scapula should slide with you on your rib cage. Uh, and if it doesn't, um, and you go to reach back there, so the arm moves, the, the, the humerus moves in the scapula against the scapula and the glenoid, but the, the scapula itself doesn't move. What, what happens there is then the soft tissues get stretched more than they should. And that more often than not tends to lend to a, a bicep tendon popping out of the, uh, popping out of its groove, which you will find bicep tendons in so many of your patients because so much of many of us are side sleepers and that tends to, um, you know, you tend to lose scapular range of motion that way, which then le- leads itself to the bicep tendon um, coming out of the groove, which most, I would say 65 to 75% of anterior shoulder pain is something related to the bicep tendon coming in and out of, the, out of its um, groove. And um, you know, the tendon sits down there and then that transverse ligament holds it down, you know, and it's probably you know, five inches worth of transverse ligament. They're holding it all the way down from the, you know, from basically just under your acromion all the way down to the, almost the middle part of your deltoid uh, or where the deltoid insertion is as far as um, down the humerus. And those, when that bicep tendon comes out, it, it, you know, destabilizes the shoulder. It causes a lot of pain because that ligament is now stretched and it's stuck stretched. And, uh, you know, that's where, you know, the, the frozen shoulder for the, um, the people that get the frozen shoulder, they usually it's the scapula, lack of scapular full range of motion that then lends to a, a subluxated um, bicep tendon, which causes, and I mean, it can be 10 out of 10 for some people. Uh, and you, and they just stop moving their arm. And next thing you know, the darn things fuse together and you, you might be able to get it better then, but, or it might take a long time for it to get better. Those are, those are, that's a slippery slope that people go down all the time. So 
learning how to fix that for people. I mean, the, the, if the shoulder's out, it's going to pull the neck out every single time. So, yeah. Yeah. So let's talk a little about the assessment of extremities because um, obviously we can't scope them like we can the spine. So we've got to rely on other tools. So let's start with x-rays because this is one that um, during school, I learned about extremities through school, but didn't really learn about x-ray examination of x-rays until I had a patient who had a, I think it was a foot problem that I was having trouble with. So she convinced me to take an x-ray. I took an x-ray. I looked at it. I knew enough to know it wasn't normal, but I didn't know how to assess it well enough to know what the problem really was. So I ended up going to a seminar, went, got up at 6 a.m. and went to Dr. Working's portion, had him, watched him draw lines on a foot x-ray and went, oh, that's what I need to do and figured it out that way. So x-rays play a part. So what role do x-rays play in the assessment of extremities? Um, when you're first learning, they are probably, you know, 80% of your uh, analysis will come from the x-ray and really trying to understand how is this joint misaligned and how is it not? I found personally that when I first started learning guns that I happened to be learning the extremity stuff at the same time. And so I, I didn't necessarily see the uh, spinal misalignments as plainly as I could um, an extremity misalignment because the extremities tend to be pretty simplistic as far as uh, how they misalign. So I personally was able to see with, with a good x-ray taken and you have to follow the proper protocols laid out in uh, working on extremities, uh, you know, like, like the x-ray knee, the x-ray of the knee and x-ray of the uh, ankle has to be weight bearing. They have to be standing on the, on the, uh, um, they have to be at least putting, you know, 60% of their weight on that joint in order to, and, and the x-ray has to be taken with it weight bearing. Otherwise you cannot draw conclusions of it from a, um, from a, from a, is it out of alignment, you know, from a line drawing standpoint or from a subluxation standpoint. Uh, so as far as x-ray protocol is, as far as x-ray protocol goes, you know, it's the, it's invaluable, especially if, if I'm talking to students here, it's invaluable as far as learning stuff. Or if you, if you touch, if you're, say you have a, a patient that comes in and they are super, um, leery of you touching them or they're super in pain like and so much so that you can't even really motion the joint or or or, or palpate the joint the, the x-ray really does help you become confident in your uh, correct line of drive to where you know you're not going to make the person worse you know just like in in the spine if it's a posterior l5 and you adjust l4 you're literally pushing l4 away from l5 you are going to make that person worse um, because you're making that l5 more posterior and it's the same thing in the extremity if you are you know, say it's a, a posterior lunate and you are adjusting what you think is a posterior radius, uh, you will make that person worse. And they, they either are going to have a lot of pain or, and never come back, or they're, you know, they're going to bad mouth you all over town. So learning the x-ray is invaluable as far as uh, being able to be specific with your adjustment. And also in the conceptually understanding, like how to, when you're really first starting to learn how to adjust something, the x-ray can really show you, you know, you can see, you know, on an ADP shoulder, if that scapula is laying flat on their back or has it has the medial border, you know, uh, subluxated superiorly, you know, and or tilted laterally, it's 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 plain as day on a on a lateral wrist X-ray is the uh, is the lunate tilted in which direction is it tilted is them is the <clears throat> proximal joint surface to the radius is it you know lined up like it should you know kind of half moon to half moon or is it or is it really tilted inferiorly or superiorly. Um, that's what the x-ray becomes invaluable at. And, you know, if you're trying to educate a patient, you know, showing them, you know, a weight-bearing uh, lateral foot x-ray is is plain as day when you're trying to you show them how the front of the tibia and the front of the talus should line up or the 
how the Teller Dome is ridden up superiorly. You can, you know, it doesn't, you know, people understand that they, they don't think that you're trying to, you know, pull a fast one on them or, or make up some make-believe thing. They can see it. You can correlate it to their findings. Uh, it's, it's a very invaluable piece of information to have, especially when people are super acute. So when people aren't that acute, it's not, it's not as big a deal, but you've got a super acute patient or you got a car accident or, you know, there's been a lot of force involved, say a football injury or something. That's where the, the extra really, you know, kind of saves your tush as far as uh, limiting liability, but also helping you be specific in your adjustment. Yeah. That, and that makes a lot of sense because when they're really acute, you can't fully motion palpate as much as you want because they have no range of motion. So yep. lost all that. But then when you can see it on the x-ray and see how it's sitting, you go, well, if I push it towards neutral, then I'll get them good enough that then I can come back and I can motion palpate it and get that information that's lacking. Yes, absolutely. Just like with the spine, if you're when in doubt, um, just P to A. <laughs> if you don't know, you're, if you're not sure on the listing, you're not sure on, on laterality, getting that thing from being as far posterior to as pushing it forward really gets you, a, you know, you can make, make a lot of results with that. It's the same thing with getting uh, extremity joints back to neutral. Yeah, that's a good analogy. Yeah, if you, um, I would say about TMJs, and one of the things that you talked about TMJ that was helpful, um, besides how to adjust one, is um, the fact yeah. that if somebody has a TMJ problem, um, we're used to a lot of times, like with the spine, you adjust them and then you give them ample time to heal. But the TMJs can be weird because you actually have to adjust them pretty frequently or you won't get the result and you'll think that the TMJ adjustment failed. Can you talk a little about the timing on it, especially with TMJ, but any other joints that are like that? Uh, okay, so if you have a, uh, a TMJ, a lot of times there's an upper cervical subluxation correlated with the two. So you have to be, you know, the, the, the spine, the nervous system becomes primary first and foremost. So say it's an atlas subluxation, you have to be able to set that atlas subluxation at the same time or either before or after, not probably before you set the, the, the TMJ. Um, now what is the most used joint in the body with the most proprioceptive sensitive joint in the body? It is the TMJ, uh, joint, you know, it gets open and closed all the time. And especially, you know, when you are, <clears throat> say you're seeing a 35 year old or a 65 year old, you know, that sometimes that joint has really worn into place. And, um, you know, the, the, the condyle and the fossa should be seated flush against each other with just about a, a millimeter of, um, joint space between them. And if, if it starts to come out of the socket, if the condyle comes out of that fossa, it tends to subluxate inferiorly down out uh, of the socket. And what will happen is it will start to wear uh, a, almost a, a new joint line in, in that socket. And the capsule starts to, to loosen up, um, you know, that holds that thing in tight in there. So when you come in and you, and you get that re replacement or reduction of that inferior uh, condyle of that TMJ back up into the fossa tighter, um, you know, the ligaments haven't tied it up. The muscles the memory hasn't, hasn't corrected yet. So it tends to uh, kind of come back out, especially if people go home and chew on something, uh, you know, that's pretty sticky or they grind their teeth or they, you know, they put their head, they rest their hand on their jaw. You know, all those things tend to put shearing force, uh, pressure on that jaw and knock it out of place. You know, how does, how do, uh, if you watch UFC, how do, how do people get knocked out in UFC? I mean, classically it's with a, with a, with a shot that comes across the jaw. So, um, not, you know, if you get punched straight on in, it shoves the jaw kind of back into place, but it's that glancing blow, um, from lateral to medial across either side of the jaw. And when you're, you know, if you're sleeping with your hand underneath your face, uh, or if you're, 
you know, watching TV and resting your hand on your, your hand on your head, and it starts to subluxate that jaw at a place that tends to really push that that thing out of you know out of there. And then, you know, the average bite force is is over 450 pounds um, per square inch for the for the average human. So that's a lot of force going through your your dinner. You know that you are reinforcing that misaligned jaw. And, try, and the body trying to help it heal kind of into a, into a bad position. So when you finally get it to reduce back into place, it, it tends not to stay there very long. But it, it, it does, you know, it's just like every every person, there's a lot of other factors that go, come into play or how they hold their adjustment. But, but the, jaw, the jaw tends to need more repetitive work than, say, um, a knee would or a, uh, or a hip would. So Yeah, those tend to be pretty quick. Um... I'm trying to think, are there any that are as frequent as the TMJ or is it really the most one you have to do? Uh, frequently? The, the most frequent honestly is the, the calcaneus and the talus, mm. because when you, when you reduce a, uh, a wrist or you reduce a shoulder, they can kind of hold it there in that position and leave it there for a while to let the body kind of uh, relax and, and uh, accept that new position of that joint with a foot or with a, uh, any, any part of the lower extremity, you know, you put it back in place body's memorized that improper position. So when you've corrected it to the new proper position, unfortunately, the patient generally has to walk out of the office. And so they've, they've already, you know, put pressure, you know, weight bearing onto the joint and, you know, the ligaments and tendons have all stretched to their other position. So they're not ready to tighten up and hold that new position. So the foot, you know, like a lateral calcaneus or superior lateral calcaneus or anterior talus, or anterior superior talus, those tend to take more repetitive work than uh you know the neck that's i'd say tmj and then those you know if you've got a bad calcaneus or a bad talus it might be every say you're seeing the person once or twice a week it might be every single visit for you know for three to four weeks to, to even longer before you really get it to hold for m multiple weeks on end symptomatically they will they will be better pretty quickly but the objective criteria of the joint will you know say that um your range of motion retaining from visit to visit well that takes quite a while yeah. Especially if they're a, um, a leg crosser or, a, uh, um, you know, they sit with their with their feet kind of inverted a lot. Or if those are the people that, that tend to have the, the most repetitive type problems. So, yeah. We've kind of uh, covered a bunch of um, extremity joints kind of glancingly. But there's, yeah. there's one I want to talk about because, um, well, I've seen you do it. And I don't know if anybody else really does some of these. But, like, can you talk a little bit about, like, um, the clavicle? in the front and some of those upper ribs in the front, uh, when the yeah. up and how you close. Yeah. So the SC joint, the sternoclavicular joint, um, you know, or the, the AC joint, the chromioclavicular joint, they, they tend to have kind of patterns to them that you'll see in people. So, uh, you know, as the, as the arm abducts to about, uh, 120 degrees, 130 degrees, right there, we're talking about the SC the joint, the, the clavicle has to rotate posteriorly to clear the manubrium in order for the, your arm to continue abducting up. So if you see some somebody who, you know, you just have them abduct their arm all the way up and they kind of get stuck at like, uh, you know, 100, 145 degrees um, or 100, 130 degrees, or they have to kind of contort themselves to get it all the way, you know, to 180 degrees. A lot of times that that uh, SC joint has subluxated and it's subluxated forward. So as the as the clavicle abducts, the clavicle will raise and tilt. But if it does, if it's not able to rotate posteriorly, like um, after it gets past 120 degrees of humoral abduction, the 
um, SC joint is stuck and it's, it's not moving because it's subluxated. And that, that next thing you know, they have to, um, tilt their spine or, or, or compensate some way to get it around it. So as far as this sternoclavicular joint, the typical, um, and of course, I'm sure there's, um, exceptions to this, but the typical direction of misalignment is anterior and superiorly. So the, 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 prox the proximal end of the uh, clavicle tends to kind of stick forward and, and up. And if the person, if the person's been a really heavy side sleeper, especially with the arm really out in front of them, you know, the only joint that the shoulder attaches to the body is the sternoclavicular joint. So all of your weight, if you're sleeping at night, say on your shoulder and your shoulders out in front of you, your shoulders not getting pressed into your rib cage, but it's in front of you is on that SC joint. And so that SC joint tends to uh, take a lot of the pressure and night after night after night, sometimes those ligaments will, will stretch on you and it'll allow that um, um, clavicle to, to kind of subluxate forward. And when that clavicle subluxates for, forward, it will not, no, now, now it will no longer rotate, you know, 90 degrees as you abduct it. And so basically people lose their full abduction. And anytime you lose full range of motion in something, you know, arthritis calcification starts to set in, you know, within three days and weakness starts to happen. So um, as far as the distal clavicle is concerned <clears throat> in its relation to the uh, acromium of the scapula, it tends generally to pop uh, superiorly. So uh, I don't know if I've ever seen an inferior distal clavicle without it breaking, but it, it's pretty much superiorly most of the time. And it's a, it's a pretty simple, um, what do you call that? metacarpal phalangeal there we go metacarpal phalangeal joint of your of your, of the doctor's hand that you abduct the arm and you put the your say it's if you're standing behind the patient and it's their right arm that the right clavicle has has subluxated superiorly you're going to stand you're standing behind the patient you abduct their arm up to just past 90 degrees as you take your left hand's metacarpal phalangeal joint and press down on the distal clavicle and you'll feel it reduce clunk you know, right back into place. And generally there's going to be a, a, a subluxated scapula to go around with that, especially because if you've been, usually there's a sleeping issue or uh, uh, maybe a dislocation issue in it. That scapula tends to slide so far laterally uh, around that it's like almost in there. It's like they have um, there's no scapula on their back. It's, it's trying to come around and land on the front of their rib cage and that jams that AC joint together. So <clears throat> that's what you'll see prolonged, um, You'll see prolonged. Uh, you'll see prolonged lateral scapula, so that's jamming that uh, acromion into the distal end of the clavicle. Uh, you'll see prolonged uh, lateral, a prolonged lateral scapula, and, a, and, a, and if the clavicle is not able to move as much as it should, you'll start to see a lot of degeneration in the AC joint, which <clears throat> most medical doctors' approach is to come in and clip the end of that um, acromion or the end of the clavicle off. Um, so that they're like, oh, there's this joint's degenerating. Uh, we're going to clip that into that clavicle off, almost like the degeneration is a disease process, not a mechanical process. And so if you can take that clavicle, the scapula from being so lateral and get it back to medial back up against the spine, like it's supposed to, a lot of times you can take all that pressure off that AC joint mm -hmm. and, and help it out dramatically. Um, I kind of invented, I don't know if I invented it or if I just figured out there's a as far as adjusting or reducing the, the superior clavicle or the anterior um, superior clavicle on the SC joint. Um, the way I was taught, I can't remember who taught me, so I don't know if I'm quoting Gonstead or if I'm quoting Dr. Worsing, but um, is a sup you, the patient's laying uh, supine and you are standing on the opposite side of the 
and of the uh, clavicle that's involved. So if it's a right clavicle, you're standing on the left side of the patient and you're, and you're reaching across them and you're adjusting kind of um, medial to lateral and uh, anterior to posterior down into the, uh, into the front of that clavicle. That tends to be extremely painful. So <clears throat> that is the adjustment that you will get the most um, reduction out of. But unless I like, I have a couple of gymnast patients and they're like, do it, whatever. We don't care. We want it back. So they're like, you know, their first visit, they want it to be crunched like that. But most people's pain tolerances are not, they can't handle that. And so I kind of invented a, an adjustment. I'll have to show it on a video sometime where you stand behind the person and you abduct the arm as you reach over their head and um, kind of give them pressure. Uh, let's see, that would be superior to inferior and medial to lateral. So the same line of drive as you abduct their arm. And sometimes you can get that thing to at least loosen up or get closer to where it should be so that the pain is down significantly before you have to do the, the supine uh, reduction of the SC joint. That, that, that is, it's, um, there's a lot of um, sometimes setup adjustments you have to do for extremities that um, really helps the patient's uh, tolerance of your adjustment, you know, do better. Because the last thing you want to do is kill your patient on the very first time you've seen them because they are not coming back after that. <laughs> Um, so yeah, so we can get into those, like the bicep tendon, if you got an anterior bicep tendon, uh, you have to set that bicep tendon before you set the lateral scapula, cause it will put a ton of pressure on that bicep tendon. If it is subluxated while you reduce the scapula and it will kill them on the front side of that scapula. So you've got to do the scap, the bicep tendon first and then reduce the scapula, not reduce the scapula first. And I've learned these through uh, trial and error. <laughs> so, That's what I was about to say is that I found with doing extremities, once you just start doing it, you start having some great success, but then on the other hand, you start having some miserable failures and you start learning pretty quickly what you can and can't do. And as long as you take yes. mental notes, you won't repeat it. But if you don't, the lesson will be there to teach you a second time. <laughs> yes. Like an, like an anterior inferior glenohumeral joint, do not ever adjust anybody's anterior inferior glenohumeral joint without first getting them into the position, giving them some inferior to superior pressure and asking them, does that hurt? Or does that not hurt? Because if they've got a really, uh, if they've got a super spinatus tear or a tendinosis or tendonitis and you jam that glenohumeral or that joint up into that, you know, you're reducing the subluxation, but that you're also slamming that super spinatus tendon, you will kill that patient. They will be in a massive amount of pain. So you can save yourself a lot of discomfort by just holding, just holding the pressure, you know, holding it, giving a little pressure in your line of drive and seeing, say, asking, does that hurt or does that not hurt? And if it kills them, I do not recommend you adjust that from the seated position. You can do the same adjustment supine without any kind of a pain like you would have in that other position or from the seated position. So, um, and I've learned that through trial and error also myself. <laughs> yeah. It's a little bit of experience too, like being the patient side. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. It's amazing how much you learn on the patient side. <laughs> yes, yes. Oh my gosh, I was I reading the other day. It was a, it was an example of medical history, and it was it was medical doctors talking to each other, and they're like, uh, they're like, procedure was successful, but patient died. In this, <laughs> you know, it's like, uh, you know, your procedure is not successful if the patient dies. You could agree. Like so, the the pay you can't be killing your patient at the same time you try to fix them. So. Yeah. So let's see. Okay. So we've talked about mostly extremities. There's a little bit of time left. Let's talk about um, your recent experience with your low back and we'll switch gears a little bit and just there's okay. a lot of, I think, good lessons in there. So, um, or even just curious points. So go ahead and share with us kind of what happened with your, with your back. Yeah. Okay. So this would be a good experience. You guys can learn from this because 
I personally have never had an osteomyelitis patient come in or come through or not that I'd known of, um, current, you know, currently, um, or, or even within weeks afterwards, I've never and in 18 years of practicing, you know, seeing close to 200 people a week for those, for those times. Um, so I was at, uh, Cal Jam down in Southern California. And, uh, I had been feeling tired for a, a, f- a few weeks, maybe even months beforehand, but I had not, I thought it was just cause I was seeing a lot, a lot of patients and had been really busy. So, um, I hadn't really connected dots between the two. So I, uh, went to Cal Jam on Friday, sat through the, all the classes was fine when it was Valentine's day, went out to dinner with my wife, woke up on the next morning, got in the shower. And when I came out of the shower, I started to feel <clears throat> kind of a tightness in my low back. And I have a, a an L5 spondylolysis. Um, so I just normally would, when I feel that tightness, I would have my wife, I literally get in a knee chest position and she would just give me a little pressure on S2, um, P to A. And that generally will take care of that tightness, um, pretty well. She's, she's, um, she, she does pretty darn good. Actually, she can adjust me in the knee chest position better than some, um, chiropractors. So, um, so she started to give me pressure on that and it just sent my back into a spasm, like, like, like real, real muscle spasm. And I'd never really had muscle spasms, but, um, the things I, it didn't start right then, but it felt like what a woman goes through during, um, back spasms during birth. It was, it was pretty atrocious. And so that started the spasm. And by the, you know, by within an hour, I had to crawl back into bed and any movement I'm talking, uh, you know, if I wanted any movement that involved, anything between L4 to, or sorry, L5, probably actually L5 S1 disc to L3 to L2 disc, uh, involved probably 10 out of 10 to, you know, 20 out of 10 pain due to muscle spasm and and pain. And I was just really shocked. You know, it it was mimicking, um, it was mimicking a disc herniation. I had a positive Valsalva all of a sudden, um, from it, you know, any coughing or anything elicited, uh, an, an extreme amount of pain. If I, if I wanted to say roll over in bed and I move my upper body as the rotation got to the lower body, it would just send it a massive amount of spasm. So long story short, uh, I w- went to the, the Donset doctor that's close to me. He, um, <clears throat> he, he scoped me. We took an x-ray, scoped me and, uh, we decided that it was my, uh, spondylolisthesis that had slipped out of place. So we adjusted my spondylolisthesis and the pain was so bad, by the way, when I got to his office and I'm not a, um, I'm not a, um, pain doesn't bother me that much. I can handle some pain, but the pain was so bad. I, I had to use a walker to get into his office. Okay. So I literally could not stand on my own. So as I got into his office with the walker, um, and still it was, the pain pattern was, was, was still representing a, uh, you know, like an acute discitis with a non-radiculitis. I did not have any, any pain going down my legs, but I had an extreme amount of localized pain and extreme amount of, um, muscle spasms in my back. In fact, my wife said when she would, when she would touch my muscles in my back, she could not tell the difference between say my erector spinae or my multifidized or my QL and my bone. It was that much of a spasm. So so anyway, so I get, we go and we get adjusted and, uh, I literally, after the adjustment, I can, I set the walker down and I walk out of there and I'm like, that was amazing. We were like high-fiving each other and people in his waiting room saw me go in there with the walker and walk out, you know, without the walker. So that was pretty miraculous. So that was on, that was on a Monday. Um, by the next day, um, I, I was back to feeling just as bad again. So I went down. 
Uh, and we got it and I got adjusted again on that adjustment. It hurt and it hurt really bad. Same exact adjustment, same exact uh, line of drive. And we could not figure out what was up. I went back home. Um, it wound up progressing and getting worse uh, to the point that I had to have, call the fire department to literally come carry me out of my house and take me to the hospital. To get to the hospital, they have they only have a CT at this hospital. They didn't have an MRI there. So I do a CT and I've got a seven millimeter circumferential disc herniation of L5 uh, S1. So that spondylolisthesis had not herniated out any direction. It had herniated on all sides of the disc, kind of like just squished the thing out. So I was still confused because in my you know, history of taking care of disc herniations and patients, there seemed to always be radicular pain associated with it. And there also always seemed to be, you know, pain, but not just excruciating. I mean, I literally couldn't even crawl. It was that bad uh, uh, kind of pain. And so, you know, in the back of my head, I was like, man, what did I do? Because I, I just, I just went to sleep and we didn't, I didn't fall. I didn't slip. I didn't do anything. So as I'm, as I'm at the hospital, they do the CT, they see the C, they, they do the CT, they see the results of it. So they start treating me kind of like it's a soft tissue injury. And then about two days later, I'm not getting any better and I'm starting to run a fever. And so they, um, they finally, uh, they have a portable MRI that comes in, they do the MRI on me and, uh, nothing new shows up. So, um, probably another two days in the hospital and this, the, uh, the internist there, thank God he, um, you know, he thinks outside the box and, uh, you know, not the, when the fire department came, it was so bad they had to give me morphine to be able to get me off my couch. It was, it was, um, it was that intense. I was so spasmed and twisted and, uh, kind of into my couch. So, uh, so they transferred me to another hospital where they have a, an MRI that's capable of doing a contrast MRI study. And if anybody's ever had not had a contrast MRI study, I do not recommend it because I was sicker than a dog with that nasty stuff they injected into me. But it was able to show that I had neural uh, abscesses showing up. Um, and I don't know the exact levels yet. It feels like it was L3 to all the way to L5. I haven't seen the actual um, contrast MRI study yet. But um, basically what I had was not an osteomyelitis technically because the bone itself wasn't affected, but I had blisters essentially or abscesses showing up on the inside of my spinal canal. And and it wound up being staph. So I had a, a staph infection inside my spinal canal. So uh, anytime I moved or anything, it was causing uh, irritation to the nerves. And it was also causing um, muscle spasms, you know, dr dramatically in that area. So, um, and the, the big, the big clue was finally the, the fever that wouldn't die down and wouldn't go away. And by the time they got me to the, the correct hospital and started treating me with the uh, IV antibiotics that really worked, by the way, um, which I am Mr. Anti-Antibiotic. <laughs> I will try to talk people out of taking them most of the time. This was an instance where I absolutely needed some antibiotics um, and I needed them intravenously. And it, uh, it's, I started getting better, you know, dramatically after that. Um, so it was actually depressing for a long time because I thought something had happened to my disc and I, and it just wasn't getting better. And I was going to need surgery because I mean, I couldn't walk or anything, which is the last thing I ever wanted to do. But it was simply a staph infection. And the doctor hypothesized that because I have, uh, you know, the injury happened in high school, my spondylolisthesis did. And he hypothesized that because there's a weakness there and I had been run down a little bit that the staff was able to settle there and then get a, um, you know, get a foothold and really start to take off. In fact, they said I was about eight hours away from being fully septic when they finally started the vancomycin. So long story short, if you're ever working on a patient, you know, they might not have that fever yet, you know, which would be the big um, red flag for you. But if their pain just seems extraordinarily out of proportion to 
what you think the injury is, it might be a good time to uh, send them to the hospital. So, uh, so I, I had a, you know, and it was, let's see, I had eight weeks of, uh, IV with a pick line going through my arm and I could not walk very well at all. I mean, it was, a, I had to actually cancel. I was trying to go get adjusted again and I had to cancel the, the adjustment because I could not step down the two stairs that coming out of my house down to the driveway. It was that painful. And luckily now I'm about, I think I'm about, let's say, okay. So it happened on Valentine's day and today is uh, April 25th. So I'm now able to walk and um, I'm probably going to start practicing in the next week or so, but uh, <clears throat> hopefully that's a learning experience that people can see and can, and I can tell people how it happened. I had a positive Valsalva, you know, I had uh, no radicular pain. Uh, I had, uh, so, you know, it, it mimicked a, a, a discitis with non-radiculitis to me. Uh, but the, once I had the fever and once the pain just became so uh, unbelievably bad, uh, that's when it was, uh, you know, the, the, the hint was there that we needed to do a contrast MRI. And that, that was the, that's the thing that decided to change the, to change the uh, treatment protocol. And that's what literally saved my life because if I'd have just stayed in the other hospital or if they would have uh, sent me home, I don't know if they would have been able to catch the infection once it um, had went all over my body. So, yeah, the, the big mystery is how, how did that even get in there? When I first told my wife, um, that that it happened that you were having that problem. I mean, it was kind of funny because I called to see if you could adjust me. And you're like, I'm in the hospital. Never mind. I'm not that bad. <laughs> so my yes. wife is like, so how's Jeremiah? I'm like, well, he's in the hospital. <laughs> like what? So then um, I said, um, so I told, kind of told her what was going on, and she's like, well, how did he get stabbed inside his spine? Did he get stabbed? And I'm like, that's what he said. And the answer is no, he did not get stabbed. So then we started hypothesizing how would he get in there. So I asked her. Could that happen orally from oral pathology? And she started thinking about it. And she said, well, I've never actually seen anybody have that happen. But she's like, you know, somehow you've got to have a bacteria that gains access to your bloodstream and isn't going digestive. And the mouth happens to be a place where that happens quite frequently. And she's like, so I don't know, but maybe. Um, other than that, it's like, how, what other possible, I don't even know how you begin to explain staph aureus, or I assume it's staph aureus, it could be some other staph, but setting up camp inside your spinal cord it's so weird yeah so it wasn't it wasn't technically in the spinal cord it was in the spinal canal so um it didn't it didn't cross my blood brain barrier thank god or i would probably not know what my name is right now but um yeah that was the conundrum in the hospital because you know i had no injuries there was no punctures no you know no any i didn't have any teeth that were at the time we knew uh, a problem, no, no cavities, no, you know, anything going along. Like since then I actually cracked a tooth and found out that the tooth was super infected without uh, having any symptoms to it. So it might've come from that tooth. Um, we, we just don't know, honestly. And that's what was so, I mean, it took four days to finally realize, in fact, the, thank God the hospitalist, um, you know, really listened to my wife who was advocating for me because he goes, this was his words to me. He goes, Jeremiah, he goes, you are on a buttload of pain medications right now and we are not touching your pain. <laughs> and he goes, there's, I think there's something else wrong here. And that's why they were able to transfer me hospitals yeah. um, because of that. So the um, other interesting thing you said was um, if somebody has an abnormal amount of pain, something that seems unreasonable, that's the to refer a little yes. stuff and immediately in my head i thought you know i've had that experience obviously not with osteomyelitis but off the top of my head i can think of three patients who had cancer and all three of them exhibited that sign as soon as i palpated them and when i couldn't palpate them even i was like something's wrong here my gut tells me they probably have cancer all three had cancer all three died within a couple of weeks of that experience and i have one patient who that happened 
she had cancer. Fortunately, she's still alive and I still see her. So that one's good. But I've seen that happen with cancer numerous times. And that's slowly become my go-to was it, cancer. Was it, was it, was it bone cancer? Um, let's see. One. I got to think of what they all had. Um, one was liver. One was bone. Actually, one was breast that went to bone. And one was, I think, um, lung that went to bone. So they were all in advanced. Yeah. They were all in advanced stages. And yet nobody had caught it. And it was yeah, I mean, so that's as I think back through mine, I haven't had that many. I've only had, as far as I know, one real bone cancer patient, and it was a, it was on his rib, and he, you know, it, he had a rib, he had a uh, he had a scope reading there, he had a subluxation there on the X-ray. You couldn't really see the um, the rib very well, but it wasn't like you could see a giant tumor there either. But as we as we touched his rib, the guy almost fell on the ground, and I'm talking, I just touched yeah. it and. Uh, we sent him back in for evaluation and it was bone cancer of his rib. And that's that thing. When you, when you seem like when a patient has that pain, that seems just disproportionate to what they're going, what yeah. they're going through. And, you know, sometimes I know I had a tendency to think sometimes that people just had a low pain tolerance, but this really helped me um, reevaluate that take on people because, and you know, most people are already diagnosed with cancer before they come into you, but occasionally, you know, you might get yeah, that one. Man. It's that when they're screaming in pain, on palpation and you barely started that's when i yes. started thinking okay there's low pain tolerance and then there's this this is not nobody screams in pain from palpation you know and that's what was so confusing on mine because i got adjusted on say i think i went down on on a saturday got adjusted on a monday and literally walked out of a place but then it was right back the next day and i was like well if it's something worse it can't be the adjustment really wouldn't change it but i think what was happening is i had a subluxation or that needed to be corrected and i had the yeah. infection so it wasn't one or the other. So hopefully that helps people know, but I did survive um, multiple segment osteomyelitis <laughs> with neural uh, abscesses. Uh, and uh, I'm almost back to normal. I still can't, uh, you know, if somebody wants me to reach down and uh, pick the face paper up off the table, that's probably the most challenging thing. I can adjust people. So, you know, that's not actually that big a deal because you stay upright, but getting the face paper off the table, <laughs> that's the that's the most challenging thing right now. So. That's kind of funny. Um, yeah, thank you so much yeah. for joining us. I think this has been very informative for people. Um, extremities is one of those things we don't talk about that much, so it's great to talk about extremities and how they relate to the overall picture, and then and then just a, a unique experience is a unique experience. So that's great too. Yeah. No problem, David. Good job on helping the uh, kids out. I like this. I'm gonna have to listen to these yeah, more. Thank often. you very much. I want to thank Dr. Thompson once again for joining me today. Extremities are an important part of the Gonstead system, so I want to encourage everyone to learn as much as you can about extremities. And of course, we're here to help you, so just reach out if you need any help. Due to the delays caused by COVID, this year's Gonstead Extravaganza will be July 18th and 19th, which just so happens to be an extremity seminar. It's a great opportunity to learn about extremities and be part of the larger Gonstead community. In fact, I'll be teaching a class on TMJ, which I believe is a very important joint for every chiropractor to be able to correct. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode, and I look forward to talking with you again next week. See you next time.